What is value? When I think of scarcity, I think of utility, and I think of that combination in terms of value, for me that epitomizes one of the biggest challenges that I've been trying to work on over the last 15 years. And so my takeaway from that is I am the kind of person, and I believe that architects in general, if I could classify them so boldly as to say, is we believe that we are great problem solvers. And the arrogance that we have is that we believe that we can solve any problem. So one of the giant takeaways when trying to solve these different things that influence ecology has presented to us is that we cannot do it alone. And we believe that we can. And it's taken a long time for me to ask for help and to actually recognize that you're not going to get there without asking for help. And my thread of thought is going to be that sense of value and how do you personally define it? How are you doing it in such a way that is going to be very specific to your clientele, very specific to your own personal needs, and how will that combine to be a message of value both for you and for who you're working with? Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ventura County, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. Barker Rinker Seacat Architecture designs buildings and places that bring people together. As award-winning architects, their projects are sharply differentiated from competitors, but often the final selection still won to price. Wanting to control their future, CEO Craig Bauck pursued an education in the elements of value. The firm had mastered practical utility, but they hadn't yet positioned themselves as a scarce resource. They then did the hard work to deeply understand their clients' breakdowns, which go well beyond the design of a building, and developed specialized tools and processes that help communities overcome the complex hurdles that threaten the success of building and operating a community recreation center. In doing so, they changed the perception from an expensive community accessory used by a few to a vital, sustainable community asset that raises the quality of life and acts as an economic driver. This episode's Guru Talk is a study of the elements of value and how too often any naivete about the constitutive elements of value can lead to labor, frustration, and lost income. Here's the interview. If you would introduce yourself, tell us who you are. Well, I'm Craig Bauck. I'm an architect in Denver, Colorado, and I'm with a firm called Barker Rinker Seacat Architecture. This firm's been around since 1975, and we've done many things throughout the uh, life of the firm, but over the last 15 or 20 years, maybe even 30 now, we've really focused in on what we can do for communities. We've got some skills as designers, and we had to decide how we wanted to apply those skills. And over the years, we tried many different project types, working with many different kinds of clients, And there's just something that resonated about working with communities and trying to figure out what their needs were, how we could help them define those needs, 
come up with a, a practical approach to solving some of their problems and providing facilities that brought people together and helped them create community. And so what that evolved to, we did lots of different kinds of things like city halls and libraries and performing arts centers, which have that quality to them. But there's a certain type of building that really spoke to us as something that met all of our kind of needs as architects and what we defined as kind of what we wanted to do. And that was developing community recreation centers. What we discovered pretty early on was that this building type was very, very popular, especially in growth cities, places that... Lots of suburbs were sort of sprouting up, and a lot of these suburbs didn't have a home. They didn't have a heart. They weren't like the old cities of old that had that place that everybody knew was the center of town, and you would go there for events and things. They didn't have that. And so these buildings that we were envisioning for people, or helping them envision, were becoming the place that people wanted to call the center of their community. And as such, they became very technically challenging and very complex buildings. They had to have recreation needs, play needs. They had to have competitive needs. They had community needs and education needs as well. From a technical point of view, it was very challenging. From an engagement point of view, we got to talk to everybody in the community. From a strategy point of view, we had to find something that everyone could get behind and support because these are all funded with public dollars. And then from a design point of view, as a challenge for us, putting that all together, we had to come up with an image and a place and a, th a thing that people could occupy that they felt represented the image of where they've been and where they wanted to go, which is a really fun thing to sort of imagine as a designer. That's a massive endeavor. I just attended something local where there was a project at hand. I, I just sort of stood there shaking in my shoes, imagining trying to coordinate all of the interests and aims of different parties. You just described a pretty massive undertaking. And I, and I understand you've been doing this now a little bit and, and are seeing some success in this as well. My hat's off to you for having the, the courage or the insanity to take on something like that. <laughs> well, if it were easy, a lot of people would do it. And that's one of the differentiators. We're hopeful that because it isn't easy, that there's a narrower marketplace for those of us who are willing to sort of swim in that swim lane. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm interested because I, I don't know that you and I have had this conversation. I have a degree in environmental design, went to Texas A&M and was going to go into architecture and was very interested in the impact that environment has on us humans. Studied at the University of Florence and came back from my trip abroad and thought, my gosh, how amazing it is that these, these cities of old have these town centers, these communities they're walking cities. There's a, such a sense of place and all of that. So when I read your notes for today's podcast, I was very curious about your own interest in helping communities because it certainly was clear that you personally have that commitment to help communities come together, to thrive, to connect. What's all that about? Well, as a point of interest, I started out studying urban design. So like you, I was very interested in how humans interact with the environment and their surroundings. And while I enjoyed that work very much, actually, I started out as a product designer. So I was actually st started out in trying to blend mechanical engineering and art and try to figure that out. What I discovered pretty quickly was that it was very, very small, at least in my mind. It was very, very small. And the impact that I could have with that, designing a piece of something else, wasn't as satisfying as I thought it could be. And so I went to the other end of the spectrum and I said, well, let's design cities. And so I went back and, and looked at, at something else and found that 
just as engaging and just as insightful and just as fun and got very involved in that. But like Goldilocks, I came to the conclusion pretty quickly after that study that one was too small, one was way too big and took way too long to implement. I didn't have the patience for that. And I discovered architecture is kind of that comfortable stool in between where I could still engage with community, still think about the environment. There's plenty of detail for that part of me that wanted to get into the weeds, but there's vision and it can be accomplished in two, three, five years of time. And so that's what got me hooked. And I went off and studied architecture. And really, we had no idea when we're studying architecture on any particular type. It's very broad in the design education. They try to keep you as open as possible until you hit the profession, which is the right, the right thing to do. But when I got out, I had to choose. And I said very much the same thing. I could go into a, a residential kind of design, which is very personal. I could go into very corporate design, which is maybe less personal. And in that pursuit of trying to find that connectivity of time and people and place, I discovered this work with community centers and I found this this company. And over the last 20 years, we've really taken that and work on trying to define what we want to do within that realm. One of the things that Influence Ecology has helped me do over the last couple of months is really think about that even more specifically. Focus is tough for someone like me because I love so many things. I love to solve problems. I love to learn. For me to settle on one thing is sometimes a very difficult thing to accomplish. So we really had to think about what it was that was becoming satisfying to us. And the fact that our work could have the most impact to the most number of people was a high criteria. And this particular work with communities and building centers that they, not only will they use, but they pay for, and they have accountability for in terms of the upkeep and the continual engagement with it, seemed to be the answer for us. Now, there are lots of different kinds of recreation type work that lots of architects do. But we found this one in particular is the most satisfying because it works with the very youngest in the community and the very oldest, and it crosses generations. So that part of it was kind of poetic for us and very exciting to us. And we've proven it over the years that we have had the opportunity to have that impact. We wanted to get better at it. And it's one of the reasons why I found you guys. And uh, it was a very roundabout way, just like the way I found architecture. And I feel very lucky that our paths did cross. Let's talk a little bit about your journey. Everyone who studies here comes to us for a reason. Your journey has a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. I want to start with the end for just a moment. Um, and let's just say real briefly, what's your big takeaway from having studied with Influence Ecology? What's the big lesson, if you will, you think? If you'd like to know more about Influence Ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. 
The big takeaway, if I had to pick one, is that I'm getting very much closer to answering this question, which was going back to the beginning, what is value? When I think of scarcity, I think of utility, and I think of that combination in terms of value, for me, that epitomizes one of the biggest challenges that I've been trying to work on over the last 15 years. And so my takeaway from that is I am the kind of person, and I believe that architects in general, if I can classify them so boldly as to say, is we believe that we are great problem solvers. And the arrogance that we have is that we believe that we can solve any problem. So one of the giant takeaways when trying to solve these different things that influence ecology has presented to us is that we cannot do it alone. And we believe that we can. And it's taken a long time for me to ask for help and to actually recognize that you're not going to get there without asking for help. And my thread of thought is going to be that sense of value and how do you personally define it. It's this idea that whatever we do, we have to look at the utility that we're providing, who is it for, And then in terms of that idea of scarcity, how are you doing it in such a way that is going to be very specific to your clientele, very specific to your own personal needs, and how will that combine to be a message of value, both for you and for who you're working with? Many people don't go to work on value. They go to work on other things. They don't go to work on increasing their utility for the user. They don't go to work on the interpretations of value that they have in the mind of their customer. So I would imagine that in your journey, you've had to look at value, both parts of it, utility and scarcity, but just value, generally speaking. How did that first point out to you where you might be naive or where something may be missing or weak or flawed? And how did that start to reshape what you guys do? The naivete, I guess, that I think you're getting at, and and what I'm willing to admit here is that in the beginning, we defined value for our customers based on what we thought they cared about. And it was so much through the lens of what an architecture firm might do. And so we concentrated on those things that we all talk about as architects and that you may be familiar with, even if you're not in the business of developing properties or projects or doing design. And that value tends to be things like, how long have you been doing this? What sort of experience do you have doing this? Can you reliably get things done on time? Do you reliably get things done within budget? Do you practice business in a fair way? With that as a framework, we would go into a conversation with a new client and we would basically present all of those things. We say, well, you know, you should trust us because we've done this a long time. We've got great experience. We're good people. That's value. And what we discovered through this work, and that's is what I mean by the naivete, there was an aha moment when we really started diving into, well, wait a minute, sure, those are interesting things, but the truth is that's just general knowledge that you need to have to even play in the world that you're playing in. To play on the field, you got to have that stuff. But that's not going to help you really because it's not going to provide the differentiation that you need for them to really understand what it is you do that's different from everybody else. And and what really brought it home was when we would go and compete for work, because we have to compete for every job. It's public work, so that it goes through a process. We would get feedback after those ones, whether we were successful or not. And oftentimes the feedback was very unsatisfying. The value that we thought we were providing was nowhere near what they were giving back to us as feedback. In fact, unfortunately, many times they would say, well, it seemed like you all could do the job. You all seem like nice people. We all like the ties you were wearing. But 
the truth is, is that you are a little cheaper or you had a little bit different approach or you finished on time the presentation or whatever it was. So unsatisfying because all the things that we thought mattered and all the little things that were behind the ideas of getting things done on time and everything weren't connecting. And so here's the thing about value that we discovered. Value is in the eyes of the beholder. And until we take the lenses that we were wearing, till we started throwing those away and looking at the project, looking at the problem through the eyes of the variety of people that are going to make decisions for us, all of a sudden, we're never going to connect. And that's where some of the study in the very beginnings where we studied uh, Fundamentals of Transaction, the FOT program, introduced us to really spend a lot of time being a little bit more empathetic, trying to figure out how people do that in different ways. What are their personality types? What are the things that threaten their status? What are the things that bring them happiness? What are the things that are the breakdowns for them in their role, in their world? And how can you focus your solution on that? Now, it's an interesting challenge because when we go after a project, we never have one person that we work with. It's not like designing a home for a couple, you know. No, we've got like a whole community that we have to work with. And so we've got every personality type represented there. And so we have to play actors in a way and we have to sort of say, what would keep these people up at night individually? What threatens their status? How might our solution be reinterpreted, represented, reinvented so that it actually helps them specifically? And so then the value definition not only becomes broader and more multifaceted, but it becomes laser focused potentially, uh, if we do it well, on everybody who is going to be our primary contacts. In the thing. It's a completely different way of thinking about what we, what we do. Way more fun, way more specific, and requires lots and lots of specialized knowledge, not just the general knowledge. Now we have to dive deep into how these buildings operate, how they're maintained, how they're funded how votes are gathered, uh, the political processes, you know, what do the council people care about? What are the uh, different organizations? What do they need out of this process? And while that might seem very um, obvious, I guess, when you look at it in retrospect, and to me, it does seem very obvious of why did it take us so long to get there? It's because we're so caught up in the way that we do things, the way the industry does things, the way everybody else does things. We follow our competition. We just try to do a little bit better than them. And this is really a sea change of how you approach things. And I got so excited about that because it was the first crack in the armor of what this idea of what scarcity could be back to our our question is, what is value? thought we had the utility thing figured out. I thought we had that figured out because that seemed super practical and objective. I had no clue how to get to this scarcity thing. Now it's like, ooh, wait a minute. If we had the opportunity to provide some status protection, maybe a little bit of help for these people so that the breakdowns that they're suffering can be whittled down, that is something no one else is doing. And that could provide that scarcity opportunity for us. Quite rare. Is there a way that people now respond to your pitch? Sometimes they say, are you guys architects? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it sounds a bit like a diplomat. I kept thinking of some diplomat who enters the city to provide a solution for all It really does have that kind of thing. But certainly in every case, for every person I've ever interviewed and and for many of the customers of Influence Ecology, when they do come to offer something of great value, you said it very, very well. It is of value in the eye of the beholder. And to shift that view, to shift that lens, I think is uh, says a lot about you and and, uh, what you guys have accomplished. Anything else we should know about how they're responding? Now, I hate to admit this, but 
I was introduced to this concept I'm going to tell you when I when my kids were small. They're in college now and high school now, but when they were small, I would take them to the openings of these recreation centers that we would design. We spent years doing these things. I was so excited for them to experience these buildings. And I kind of expected that they would talk about, hey, dad, this is cool. You know, I love the design of this thing. It feels so great. <laughs> well, my kids talked about the shuffleboard game or the air hockey game or the water slide. That's all they talked about. And my wife, she talked about how great the restrooms worked. So I guess my point is, is that the design, the final product that we do obviously is super important, but it is just the end point. And it's the entire process now that is designed. What we're trying to do is we're trying to educate our clients and educate everybody that you can't focus just on the end product. We are called architects and people assume they know what that means and they say, okay, great, you're going to draw some drawings, that's going to be something built but the truth is, is that what we really do, and this is the challenge for us, is to explain we design an entire process from figuring out what it is we're going to do to the very end when we assess the success of what we did when it's a built form and it's having impact on communities you know, in two or three years' time. That's fantastic. It's absolutely had a sea changed in terms of our identity or my identity, our firm's identity, who we are, what we do. And I tell you, when we get new people out of school, when they come and they're beginning their careers in this, it is a wake-up call. It's like, whoa! I would imagine. We laugh. We, we used to draw everything on these big sheets of paper, 30 by 42 pieces of paper. And we used to say, oh gosh, I never want to be the kind of people that have to move to eight and a half by 11, right? Because that means I'm not drawing anymore. That means I'm shuffling papers. But the truth is, is, is to get to the point where we're able to do those designs and help and actually execute things, there is 80% of the work is before that. It's helping people get there. And that's what's so intriguing about influence ecology for us is it's giving us introduction to a whole set of tools that we can use when we're not at our drawing tables, doing the thing that we thought we did. Now we've got all these tools which we can use, which are so helpful in terms of working with other people, transacting. When I'm in front of my piece of paper and I'm drawing my, I'm not transacting with anybody. I'm just doing my thing. I love that. But to get there, I've got to get good at this transaction stuff. Very good. You used this term, I, I loved it. You called it personality empathy. In terms of personality empathy, how has that impacted your own value in your own firm or perhaps in relationships? Our firm is run by a group. We have several of us that run the firm. There's no autocracy. And fortunately, and maybe unfortunately, but fortunately, I believe, we have all of the personality types that are represented in Influence Ecology. In my opinion, one of the great interesting things that I've done with this program is I've had the good fortune to be able to do this program side by side with my business partner. And she is at the opposite spectrum of where I am. I identify as an inventor. She identifies as a producer. We have judges and we have some performers too that are at our table. One of the things that we have always done is we run by consensus and we keep working on things until we all sort of agree, have confidence that we can move forward. It's super inefficient. Not that we're getting to agreement, but because we weren't acknowledging who we were and how we work together, it was a very inefficient and slow process. And one of the things we learn in the transaction cycle is that certain personalities can be more powerful and effective during certain aspects of the transaction or the transaction cycle. And 
the way we were doing it was we were all hands on deck for every issue, which was incredibly inefficient. It was fun. I mean, we all felt like we had something to offer. You know, we all wanted to be there. We all felt like it was our job and our obligation to, and, and be there in the commitment. But once we started studying and understanding these personality types and having empathy for where those strengths were, and then trying to negotiate and arrange and give more autonomy to those people for certain aspects of our business that made sense for that aspect in the transaction cycle, but also whatever was the particular focus. Oh my goodness, is it better? And part of that was just defining roles. We were able to use our titles and our roles and then assign that with a little bit more specificity based on personality types. It fit very, very well. For, for example, our, our CFO identifies with a kind of a judge personality. I love that. That's perfect. Folks that help with our marketing are more on the inventor type of things. And then all of our production and all of our human resources folks, they identify as producers and they do a beautiful job with that. And by letting them lead where their strengths are and having empathy for that and trusting that that's there and just becoming more educated about how that can be more powerful and effective, it's made us a better organization and it's made it more fluid. Now, I will say, and this is maybe a personal thing about the way we work, we wouldn't have come to that conclusion unless I was working through this course and this study without somebody who was at the other end of the spectrum from me. It was great to have that study partner to be able to temper, challenge, question, work through, and really try to ask questions about understanding it. Because I tell you, some of the terminology that we use in influence ecology is not in intuitive initially. It takes a while to get your hand, head around it. I'm still working on some of that. And having two perspectives from two different viewpoints who have the same background and are trying to solve the exact same problem, very, 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 very cool, very, very fun. And so I know that there are other organizations um, within the IE community that have reached out and have tried to expand and have more people from their organization take this on. And it will be appropriate for some and maybe not others, and that's totally fine. But I will say that those who have had that opportunity to at least do the fundamentals of transaction have seen phenomenal benefits in terms of how they work as an organization, even on day-to-day -day work. From that point of view, I think that whole idea of personality empathy is worth its weight in gold. And I tell you, we are the kind of firm, we do lots of personality assessments. We've been doing this for 20 years. We believe in this. But I have to say from my own personal experience, while I appreciate and acknowledge that those other ones are quite good and can do lots of good things, I have not found one that is as accessible and has a, a structure of study around that so that you spend enough time with it to be able to internalize it. And so from that point of view, I find it to be incredibly effective. While those other ones are interesting as a fundamental, as a fundamental understanding and a way to build other things around, we have found that the way that we talk about personalities and the way they interact has been extremely beneficial to us. And one of the big takeaways from the work that we've been doing over the last several months. Would you say it has great utility? <laughs> well, I would say that one has value because yes, it has utility and I don't know anywhere else where you can get it. So it has scarcity as well. So that for me is perfect answer to that equation. I accept. All right. Well, is there anything else that you would like to say about your journey here? Any other nuggets to walk away with? I have a confession to make if, if you'll accept me trying that. Of course. When I first started this, I was incredibly skeptical. Good. <laughs> I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but I, I thought of this as kind of a self-help thing. And, you know, I was really focused on our enterprise. I didn't think I needed any personal self-help kind of work. I thought I had that taken care of. And so I came to the initial meeting because 
my sister-in-law, who I trust, had said, you need to come and check this out. So I did. Immediately after, you know, spending an hour with Kirkland and meeting some of the people who had been through a year or so of study, I was, I was beginning to think, hmm, this might be a little bit different. It took me months and months before I actually followed up and followed through with you and Kirkland and Liz to sort of sign up. And I have to say that I still was skeptical. And going through the FOT program, it's not as much enterprise-based because you're trying to learn fundamentals. And so there's a lot of personal focus in there. And so at the same time, impatiently, I was like, okay, let's get to the enterprise, get to my business, let's get to this. How can I apply this? Of course, you know, it's one of those things that it takes time to absorb this stuff and you can't just leap ahead. And I didn't go to the first conference because I finished my FOT program. I'm like, I'm not sure. I, I just don't know. This is good stuff, but boy, I haven't really seen the application of it yet. So I didn't do that. I thought maybe that would be too much. And then I said, okay, I'm going to have another conversation with the group, my study group, and with, with Kirkland and with yourself. And we signed up for the next program and felt very fortunate to be able to do that. And then I went to conference. And so my confession is this. If I had had a little less skepticism, and if I had jumped in a little sooner, I think I would have been even further along in my awareness, my competency, my ability to recognize how this can connect to everything that I'm doing. And it wasn't until I went to that mid-year conference where I was blown away. I really and truly was, but I did it. And it was fundamentally changed my attitude towards how this all works. And meeting people who have practical applications to share, who can give another interpretation of this and expand my understanding in a, in a very meaningful way is fun. It's challenging. And to me, and both Katie, the business partner who, who went with me as well, had felt the same way. It was uh, what we needed. If you're going to do this study, treat it like you would probably your business anyway. Don't do it unless you're going to do it. Go in all the way from the beginning. Give yourself over to the study. Give yourself over to all it has to offer. Don't be skeptical. Do that prior to signing up. But once you sign up, put that skepticism aside. Jump in because you're just wasting your time otherwise. And you're going to miss out on really expanding this as much as you possibly can. I hope that people can learn from that, if nothing else. Very, very good. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure to get to know you, Katie, as well. been a pleasure. And I didn't have much of a relationship with you prior to your attending the conference. I'm so glad you were blown away at conference because I was, frankly, blown away the other way. I was blown away by you guys. It's a pleasure to know you. I look forward to seeing you at a conference real soon. Until then. We'll see you in Cabo. Thank you. Craig, thank you so much for being with us today on the Influence Ecology Podcast. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. As I said in our Guru Talk, we'll study the elements of value and how too often any naivete about the elements of value can lead to more labor, greater frustrations, and lost income. Here's the talk. One element of value most people ignore or are simply indifferent to is that of their professional identity and more specifically, the identity of help that they produce in the specific ecologies where they must produce powerful identity. The identity you produce in the areas where you transact to satisfy your conditions of life, that's what we call your career. Our approach to career is a, it's a transactional approach. It's a holistic, integral approach to dealing with our identity. When we talk about identity. We're talking about uh, how we're known. When we talk about an identity of value, we're talking about a value perception. Perception 
you could say is a story about how one's ability to help is actually known and known in a specific ecology or community. If you think about it, a career is an identity. It's a story that one enjoys as a recipient of narrative, you could say, how others hold you, hold me in terms of reputation. And it's a story that's built based on some key elements. It's a story built first and foremost by a set of ethics, how you're known as character in a particular discourse, in a particular community or course of action over a period of time. And it is supported by the objective occurrence of that course of action. In other words, the things that actually get done that people see and people recognize, that body of accomplishments we produce over a long period of time. And that whole proposition of value represents a kind of help. And more importantly, it represents a kind of help in a specific ecology. Professions, for example, professional occupations are mostly what people associate career with. But a career is the identity produced in any transactional series of occurrences over time. When people speak of their career in general, typically what they are describing is a kind of commingling, kind of an arrangement of the work they do and the role they hold and the activities associated with how they make a living. And on the very surface, fundamentally, I don't have any problem with that. We accept that description. However, that particular orientation of career is kind of useless and it's even kind of anemic. Because a career isn't specifically the work involved, but the results and consequences of the work that we do in a specific course of action. And that produces narratives of identity. It produces narratives and stories about us. The narrative that could be valuable enough for others to want to purchase, to align themselves with in order to associate their identity, their values, their principles with. Pro-athletes, celebrities, in many cases, they make their money not from just being known as the skillful practitioner of that particular discourse, great athletes. They make their money because of the accomplishment being translated into a story that people who want to sell products and services align with. That's an identity. The definition of career is a person's progress or general course of action over the course of time through a phase or an undertaking. And most commonly, that's associated with a profession or an occupation. But it ought not just be limited to that. I have a career in Toastmasters. If you look at the general course of action that I have engaged in over the course of my adult life in a specific discourse you will find that I have regularly involved myself in a career of public speaking. And that includes being known in certain circles, in certain communities, in in specific ecologies as someone who does that and has achieved a body of accomplishments in it. A career is an identity we hold about value for a particular community or a particular ecology. It's a narrative about our ability to bring specific resources of help into that ecology and offer it in some way. Could be occupational skill. It could be a career known of some kind of sociability or depth of relationship. But it is always the narrative that other people have of us, 
not our story so much as it is the story others have of us and the story that we build over time, constructed in a relational, co-constitutive way with the communities we engage. And we can impact that. We can build on it purposely. We can build on it strategically. And we ought to think about how we are perceived as value in those ecologies and communities where we transact. We also see that kind of identity get impacted and even destroyed in mere moments. There is a tremendous amount of value to mine in local ecologies, and career these days is relegated into some other kind of area of life that most people don't pay much attention to, and that's a mistake. We talk about identity. We're talking about a perception of value. And too often people approach values as a kind of tactical relationship, as a set of features and benefits, a utility, if you will. And that's fine, and that's a totally acceptable way to approach it, but it's not taking full advantage of what's available when you look at career as a condition of life. In our next episode, we interview Tara Collison from Meddlers, a boutique consultancy in Phoenix, Arizona, focused on working with businesses who are in periods of growth and evolution. We are pattern-making machines. If you tell yourself a story about how your way is the best, you're going to see all of the evidence that confirms that. It's called confirmation bias. And once you get that story going in your head, you're just going to keep doing it over and over and over and over. You keep seeing it. And I had a lot of that going on. And I faced a lot of that while I was going through the program of understanding that actually, no, my way is not the best. And that other people's ways of doing things, especially in areas that are not my strengths, is going to be way better, simpler, more effective, and cause me a lot less pain. I wouldn't be where I am now if it weren't for my journey through influence ecology. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share it with others. You can share it from our website at influenceecology.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you get your podcasts. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment to go to iTunes and let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to another great episode of the Influence Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I'd like to thank Craig Bauk for a great interview. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with him and all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that make all this possible. Our staff includes episode producer, editor, and music supervisor, Jason Kelly with Tyson Crandall and Carol Gregory.